Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Gant Laborde. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Hassan Kane. Hassan, do you want to introduce hey. yourself? Hey, thanks, and grateful to be here. Yeah, my name is Hassan. I was born and raised in Ivory Coast, West Africa, before moving to the U.S. at the age of 17. Growing up, I was very interested in math and physics and always wanted to do engineering, even though I didn't know what it meant. And I was fortunate to be able to attend MIT, where I was studying CS, a minor in math. And I studied at a time where the field of machine learning was taking off. So it definitely, you know, affected my life trajectory. Fast forward to, to now, I'm leading the data science team at the startup called Entropy Labs, where we uh, work on uh, natural language processing for customer support. Yes, yeah, so that's a awesome. little bit about me. Are you a software engineer trying to learn machine learning? then you should check out the course from Educative.io called Machine Learning for Software Engineers. It has 87 lessons, eight quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, and two code snippets. In other words, it's not just a set of videos that tell you how to do the thing. It actually walks you through all of the processes for machine learning. It gives you quizzes. It makes you do challenges. It's very hands-on. It's done with experts from companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. And it is a terrific course that I've been learning to do machine learning. So go check it out at devchat.tv slash learnml. That's devchat.tv slash learnml. And that'll take you to the right place. You can sign up for the course. Yeah. So you said you started when it was taking off. So what year would you say that you started to get drawn into machine learning? And what was the thing that took off that sort of brought you with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I started my, you know, attending college in 2013. And Mm -hmm. actually, Mm -hmm. like, as soon as like, in my first class, there were examples. And because I came being interested in uh, math and physics, and like, they're kind of like two paths for those studying computer science. Mm -hmm or interested in math and physics, there is one path that's more on the cryptography side. So, you know, talking about encryption and like protocols and things like that, or you have the kind of like machine learning side. Even in my introductory computer science class, there were like a few examples, but nothing too crazy. Even in in the, in the second class, there was like actually, that's where it started to get really interesting. We had to program a robot that had to learn to localize itself given a model of the world. So basically, it's uh, it was like a very simple simulation of like Mars rover, but like just like in a, in a room where basically the robot would send like pulse and laser and based on the distance to the wall, like the robot actually had a map of the world and say, okay, if, you know, in the west direction, I'm like that close, the north direction, I'm like that close to the wall. And like east direction, I'm like that close to the wall. This is where I think I am in the map. Or this could be the three location where I sample from it over time, the robot would kind of like converge to its location. So it was one of my first times seeing, you know, like probability in action and somehow being like very helpful. But I would say that like one of the tipping points for me was fall 2014 when I attended the healthcare hackathon with a friend and you know at the moment the the app that like we started working on the goal of the project was to basically do like skincare issue detection but from a from a phone and what we did at the time was just like we would have you know i mean that was for a demo we would just have a picture we would do reverse image search of the picture on google image and say oh maybe these are the like likelihood of having this skin issue and whatnot but then over the time just on that one example from fall 2014 like convolutional neural network started 
really taking off. And I've seen mm -hmm. over the years how like that problem went from being very almost impossible where we're literally doing reverse image search to now like becoming more and more feasible. So I would say like the typical point like started to be around fall 2014. And I personally decided to like really explore the field after summer 2015. And there was this kind of like op-ed on uh, deep learning by uh, Hinton, Benjo and, and Yandekan that mm -hmm. said, okay, this is what the field is about. And this is, this is, yeah, this is how it's going to change the world. So that was around that time that like, it, it, like the seeds were planted, but really when I got to see the powerful application enabled by the rise of deep learning in my like third year, that's where like, I was like, you know, that's, that sounds amazing. Yeah. That's super awesome. It is sweeping people up left and right. It's a really cool thing to get involved. It's cool things come out and then mm -hmm. more and more people go, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Super. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing in the material you sent us is about natural disasters and helping clean that up. I think there was some stuff on cleaning up the Niger Delta. There was some stuff. It looked like some of the stuff implied like fires and stuff. I actually have a funny story. So I live in Lehigh, Utah, which is this, we're a growing town. We're kind of becoming the tech hub south of Salt Lake City. And anyway, there was a fire, a wildfire that mm -hmm. was up on the kind of the northeast end of town. And I live all the way out on the west end of town. Mm -hmm. And so I started getting calls from family members and they're going are you okay is everything okay and you know and i'm like yeah they're like have they evacuated you and i'm like no that fire's nowhere near us and they're like the one in saratoga springs which is it's a little town on my side of lehigh right and so it turned out that, that one was a whole lot closer and had the possibility of actually hitting my house wow. and there were so there were two wildfires at the same time and oh, wow. i just was completely unaware of the one that was closer to me i mean they got them both <laughs> under control i think they lost like two homes out of the whole thing i mean it burned acres and acres and acres but anyway, I'm kind of curious now, since it hits close to home, I mean, how does AI or machine learning, how does that apply to fixing or cleaning up natural disasters? Because, you know, some of your examples were like oil spills, which is also interesting. It's like, yeah, how, how do you use AI to know how to handle that? And then in my case, it's like we've got all this fire scarred land out here now, right? And it'll come back in a year or two, I'm sure. But yeah, how would it help us here? Yeah, in that case, I think like one of the underlying technology that powers a lot of these is the right of remote sensing so rise of like cheap satellite imagery so there has been you know in the recent years like rise of providers like planet labs and other companies that have put up satellites out there and that can even capture like image of the earth regularly mm -hmm. and so one of the challenges that come with that is you know analyzing all of this change right so uh, identifying building, detecting change, and a lot of uh, areas that I got exposed to involve using computer vision. There's like so much that can be done there. On, on one side, just like classifying land over time, or in other case, even identifying traces of uh, natural disaster because based on multiple, like because, you know, with satellite, you have, you know, not only the RGB, like red, green, blue, but you have multiple wavelengths, you have infrared, you have thermal image, you have all sorts of things that can be used, you know, to detect not only change, but also as, like, you know, th those wildfires. So there's been increasing interest in using those tools to do a couple of things. One is like kind of like detection of these events before even the public or other people are like aware of those. So you can think of it as like kind of like, yeah, earth, like real-time earth monitoring and like a lot of organization like, you know, NASA or like European space agencies are doing that. But, uh, interest, but like over time, there's been an interest to collaborate more with humanitarian 
kind of like communities to provide real-time data in case there is an emergency such that people can, you know, identify a natural disaster, their progression, and estimate damage in real time such that they can allocate resource. Because when such such disasters strike, like time is of the essence. And if you have an automated analysis tool that can say, okay, this was this region yesterday, this is this region today, I noticed, you know, the spread of this fire, or this is a live feed of the area, and I noticed the spread of this fire, I'm going to like learn to predict where uh, the fire will propagate next, or just a disaster is done stroke in that city, and I can detect, you know, from the image of yesterday, which building seems to be affected, which area seems to be affected, where should we deploy resource, because in that case, it's normally human analyst that would have to look through that data and, you know, take a few hours, identify the regions. But if you have algorithm that can take, you know, image of before, like say yesterday, image of today, we can actually start training algorithms to detect that change and like direct resource where needed. Wow. What do you think is the more popular, you know, this kind of like this data collection, right, to, mm-hmm. to feed in and to create these algorithms? I've seen several different directions. You were talking about NASA, we're talking about satellites, we're talking about huge, amazing equipment. But also on the same side, I'm seeing people really go down to edge devices for machine learning. Small, I think it was uh, XNOR AI who had the solar powered AI chip that could like be picked up by a balloon and it was small. I guess in the same sort of vein, are you seeing like a trend? Perhaps you were talking about this, these massive amounts of information mm-hmm. and this influx. Is it people like NASA? You said they're, they're working with smaller organizations. Do you think the smaller organizations are getting these more edge level devices? You think people are going to start setting up uh, small phones and stuff to help catch fires early? It's just sort of an interesting avenue. This reminds me of like the web kind of saying like, do you do it on the server? Do you do it mm-hmm. on the client? Yeah. I feel like this, we're seeing the same thing here in AI. Yeah, good question. So in those kind of like use case, the advantage of, you know, sort of like imagery or remote sensing data is that it's very consistent. And so over time for these like large scale like events, it actually helped to have that consistent data. So so that's why for for those use cases of like change detection, of monitoring like wilder, you know, like forest and things like that, it makes sense to use remote sensing or like satellite imagery because it's consistently collected and we can track change over time. However, you're, you're getting at an interesting point, which is that, you know, the, the flip side, or like the downside of that is that, you know, in some application or some use case, the remote entity data may be too small. So in some case, you may need to fly you know, like a mini drone with a camera over an area or those things. But it, it, you do get into the issue now that the data there may not be as consistent as because, you know, for, the, for like a satellite, it's at a constant altitude over time. So it's very easy to compare the picture of yesterday with the picture of today. But if you now try to fly a drone and, you know, over like a river or over area, you you need to have to make sure that, you know, you're going to fly at the same altitude as yesterday. Otherwise, suddenly those details are going to be a little bit harder to, to capture, a little bit harder to label. And that's often the challenge of this edge thing, which is that the, the data gathering may not be consistent. And as a result, can kind of like, hamper the ability to to use that edge those edge device but in in some other case like you, you're correct because like you know the, the even more extreme version of the edge is actually the person with a smartphone right so like people have also in some of these cases tried to leverage social media data with people publishing videos or like or pictures of, of if there are like incidents that happen to understand how to respond where to locate so like social media and like 
people at the edge can help with that. But the advantage of the, you know, like remote sensing is kind of the consistency of that data gathering. All right. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as you, you pick up these different changes, how do you know which changes are favorable or the goal just to get it back to the way it was? Or is there some other option to use AI to determine, you know what, this all burned down, but we could actually get some of these, you know, maybe we have an invasive species or something, right? And so we can figure out how to keep that from coming back and bring back, you know, some of the more natural things that live there? Or is that kind of outside of this? So it's like, you know, one of the biggest challenge with Earth monitoring in general is that like, even, you know, if you ask kind of like most people, how has the Amazon changed over time? Or how has, you know, this like body of water like in the Middle East changed over time? Like people cannot even quantify or like they they may not have like the best quantitative estimate. So I think like a, a lot of the first step come in the support of just like understanding how like in, in, in a very quick way how some areas are changing over time i think in many cases i would say it's the response to those change that like is on of a political nature and it really depends on many things beyond AI. Fortunately, unfortunately, but the first part is helping to quantify and predict change. So I've seen like a lot of work. I mean, and all of this is kind of like emerging. So it's it's not full-fledged and, and it's, it's it's an area that like, I think in the next year or decade will become more relevant, but some of the things can be, you know, could you predict where a region will be affected by, you know, water scarcity and and deploy things like ahead of time or could you predict which region will be affected by by heat waves and like you know do a lot of prevention to prevent these disasters to strike and surprise everybody and we even actually saw that a little bit with the COVID-19 actually where like it was it was apparently a a robot that detected the first signs of the spread of a pandemic but it then like you, you we also see that it's depending on the like uh, the political bodies to kind of take that information and and act upon it and that's kind of like where it's you know you could say it's it's, it's one of the limitations of the system is is that in, in in that case of monitoring it just tells you hey this is what i think is happening but whether or not it's good whether or not how you respond to it is, is completely different actually there, there was even recently work by google x on tracking like marine species actually in the ocean and they kind of like develop this this classifier that can identify different species of fish. And so they will have like these robots going in the ocean and kind of like tracking wildlife and just have an example of like different species. So like there's a lot of like interesting things like that, which are definitely under discussion. I'm glad that you, you know, you allow me to kind of like bring this up. But I think that in a lot of cases, the, the biggest challenge is after you gather that data, like what decisions do you make? Like, let's say you track some wildlife population, you notice that it's increasing or decreasing in area. Like a lot of the response, like I think it, like it's it's more towards, you know, political decision makers for better or for worse, but that's kind of like one of the limitations. And another thing, sorry, right. even on the on the edge side. So I was, I remember being at the workshop like two years and a half ago and there were some researchers from Kenya and they were talking about actually one of the sites where like it can be helpful for like edge is uh, monitoring birds actually so uh-huh. there's been some work actually on uh, one monitoring bird population so what they would have is they would have those edge devices that I can actually recognize the sounds of different bird species oh, and nice. they would deploy them in the forest and track over time you know how many parrots did we hear or how many like other type of like species did we hear and that will enable them to collect that data and understand the dynamics of like migration of like species counts nice. and things like that. So that's where Edge actually is helpful because you're not going to get yeah. that from satellite for sure. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would love, yes, anything sound sound related. It's going to have to be Edge. I, I'd never yeah. thought of it that way before. And I have to say, I've heard some pretty crazy birds in my neighborhood. And I wish <laughs> there were those like, I was like, who do I talk to to ask, <laughs> what is that? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's starting to, we're all getting an expert in our pocket, which is really cool. That's a great application. I wonder if there's anything out there. Like, what bird is this, the, the app? <laughs> there's actually yeah. a current, there's just currently a challenge on Kaggle. Oh, nice. Yeah, around detecting different sounds of bird. Like, they did some effort to to label different sounds, but it's true that it, it's, again, it's like a whole ocean in itself. And, and that's actually one of, one of the interesting case, right? Where we as humans don't even know, like, we don't, we don't know, right? It's a form of modality that, we are not actually used to and, and that's where like a machine that can just listen to all different type of species like a Shazam for birds songs mm-hmm. can actually start to you know outperform us in a, in a regime that like, <laughs> we're not even very good at except you know if you maybe like train to be bird watching but that would definitely help to have those edge devices that can say oh like what, what bird is that? That's yeah. so awesome. You, you know you mentioned Kaggle which mm-hmm. is a great place for people to come in and learn from experts and also see how well they're doing. I, I wanted to ask you, you said you came here, I think, how old were you? 17 when you came to the States? Yes. Yeah. What an awesome story to come to the States and to break into technology and to break into a brand new technology. Mm-hmm. You obviously, you know, you know the path well. You knew where you wanted to be. There had to have been some serious things that you you had to surmount in order to switch countries, learn everything new, and then be at the top of your game with something that most people don't have. So I have a two-part question for you. One is, what are the what are the tricks that, that made you do it? Well, what made you specifically capable of kind of getting into it and learning more about this? And then also, what would be your advice to new people who are trying to do the same thing? Yeah, you know, you, you're absolutely correct that, you know, when, for example, I like even... Even, I mean, I don't actually say, I didn't have actually a clear idea of like, I mean, I say I wanted to be an engineer.